Turn to John chapter 15, verses uh, 18 through John chapter 16, verse 4. That's on page 902 of the ESV Pew Bibles. John 15, 18 through the first four verses of chapter 16. John 15, starting at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now that they have no excuse for their sin, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word, we ask that you would give us the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We want to see the original meaning. We want to see what you were saying to to these people, the original hearers, we want the the original context, we want the application as well. We want the true meaning and we want the true application in our life. So Father, we ask for your help and we pray these things in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. When was the last time you went hiking? Often, State and national parks have brochures or trail guides that provide information about the hikes located inside the parks. They have a location of the trailhead marked. They have uh, either a solid or a dotted line that shows the path of the trail. And then often they have something called a difficulty rating. Not all of them have this, but most often they're divided up into three groups. Group one, easy, level terrain. You're not changing in elevation very much at all. They're short hikes. They are sometimes paved with crushed rock or wood chips. Sometimes they're a wood uh, uh, boardwalk or some of the nicer ones, they're six or seven feet of, of asphalt just paved. 
Uh, the weeds and the trees are cut back from the trail. The, the lawn is mowed right next to the trail. You're not climbing over anything. The hike often gently snakes around in a nice quarter mile loop. That's the easy. Then there's moderate. There is some level terrain, but there are also some elevation changes. You're going to be going uphill at times. You're going to be going downhill at times. Maybe there's some climbing involved. And no longer do you have these nice paved, even walkways. There's just a dirt path. And sometimes the dirt path is hard to discern. It kind of fades in and out sometimes. You might have to crawl over something or crawl under something. The, the weeds and the, and the trees are not kept back from the path. Sometimes you kind of have to turn sideways and, and force your way through. Moderate hikes are going to be longer than a quarter mile. And then finally, difficult. These hikes have a lot of elevation change. Sometimes they have steep inclines. You may have to rock climb in some situations. There are obstacles to cross. If you have bad knees and hips, you probably shouldn't go on a difficult hike. If you have extremely young children, you probably shouldn't take them on these difficult hikes because they're long. They're not a quarter mile. They're, they're several miles in length. Sections are often overgrown with vegetation. And sometimes there are warnings posted. Caution. Narrow trail. Dangerous drop-off. These are the kind of trails that you need to take plenty of water along with and know what you're doing. And often these trails do not circle around in a loop, which means whenever you've reached the end of the trail to the scenic overlook or the summit or the, the waterfall or whatever it is you're seeing, now you have to go all the way back. Every step you took to get there, every mile that you passed, you have to take that back. These are difficult hikes. In our passage from John this morning, Jesus assigns a difficulty rating to our journey or hike through life. And the difficulty rating is difficult. This is not an easy hike. Jesus teaches that whoever follows him will be hated by the world. They'll be persecuted by the world. Believers are going to have a difficult hike through life because they follow Jesus Christ. That's the reason, on account of his name. That's why the hike is difficult. And he tells his disciples in this passage, uh, so they're not discouraged. He tells them ahead of time, this has a difficulty rating so that you know ahead of time, so you're not surprised, so you're not caught off guard. He tells them it will be difficult so they will not fall away. That is the purpose of this passage. It is to encourage believers so that they do not fall away when following Jesus gets difficult. And it starts in verse 18. We'll call this section two groups. He fires off this statement. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So Jesus is preparing his disciples, these, these 11 men, for what's going to happen after the cross. And one of the things he's preparing them for is a difficult hike. Difficult times. Difficult times. Hatred, persecution from the world on account of his name. And they were hated. They were thrown into prison. We can read through the book of Acts. They were beaten. 
They were hunted down. They were pursued. Uh, And then, of course, they were executed. Church tradition has Peter being executed on a cross upside down. He did not feel himself worthy to die in the same manner as his master. So he was crucified upside down on a cross. So when Jesus says, if the world hates you, he's not saying it might happen, it might not. In case it does, here's what I want you to be ready for. No, he's saying this is going to happen. You will be hated. You will be persecuted. And I don't want you to be caught off guard. Likewise, 1 John 3.13, this isn't isolated. Uh, 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Jesus is telling them this is going to happen. And when it does, I want you to remember that the world hated me before it hated you. And we've certainly seen evidence of that in the Gospel of John. John 8.59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. John 11.58, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And then, of course, they crucified him. We haven't gotten there yet in the Gospel of John, but we know it's coming. They actually do crucify Jesus. So being hated by the world is to follow in the footsteps of Christ. That's true for the 11, and it's true for followers today. Now, being hated by the world does not automatically mean that you are favored by God. Let's, let's throw that out there just for clarification purposes. Um, we shouldn't take this as some kind of spiritual law that we can extrapolate out and apply to everyone who ever lived that ever has a, a difficult time in life or that ever is, is persecuted or is, is, uh, you know, experiences hardship or anything like that. And we shouldn't conclude, well, oh, they must be favored by God as if there's some sort of back door into receiving salvation, even if you don't believe in Jesus. That's not it. That's not what's happening here. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And we can hear the contrast In Jesus' words here, you've got Jesus' followers, and then you've got the world. There are two, and only two groups. Followers of Christ and the world. That's it. If you are belonging to the world, then the world will love you, he says. But if you belong to me, the world will hate you. It's just that simple. It's black and white. It's a yes or no. The world hates Christians because they are Christians. The world hates Christians because they belong to Jesus, they follow Jesus, they worship Jesus, they obey Jesus' teaching. That's why. The world hates Christians because they have been called out of the world and they no longer join the world in its unbelief and rebellion against God. The world hates Christians because they are a visible, flesh and blood reminder that there is a God. That we are morally accountable to God. That Christ did establish his church. That we are called to worship on the Lord's day. That everyone is called to repent from sin and turn to Jesus Christ and trust him with their salvation. Christians are an ever-present reminder of that. They, they remind the world that there is such a thing as sin. There is such a thing as heaven and hell. And 
the unbelieving world does not want to be confronted or reminded about that truth. The unbelieving world, the unbelieving world is doing everything it can to deny that truth, to suppress that truth, to avoid that truth, to deny it, to, to uh, be distracted from it. They're doing everything they can to get away from it. it it's like trying to avoid looking directly in the sun. They, they don't want to, to stare at this truth. They'll do anything to shield their eyes. I have an old friend from childhood, and we don't talk very often, but when we do, he, they're an unbeliever. He, they know I'm a believer. They know what I do. When we're talking, everything can be going just fine. We can have a nice conversation and catching up, but then as soon as I transition to anything spiritual, anything to do with Christ, all of a sudden their face, which was animated and, and following along, goes flat, and they literally turn away and kind of do one of these until I'm done, and then they re-engage. That's just a, a perfect illustration. Now, most people aren't, aren't quite that obvious. Most people are a little more polite. But that's a, an illustration of the world, not wanting to hear it. Verse 20 says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He's using a proverbial saying here. The servant is not greater than, than his master. The eleven, they're, they're the servants. Jesus is the master. Likewise today, we're the servants. Jesus is the master. We don't want to get that messed up. Let's be clear, crystal clear on that. He's the master. We're the servants. All of us. And the servant is not going to have a more comfortable life than the master. That's just not how it works. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Teach, Jesus is teaching that as the world divided over him and his teaching, so also the world will continue to divide over their word and their teaching as they are faithfully proclaiming the words of Christ. It will, will start with the apostles in that current generation, but it will continue until he returns. Those that rejected Jesus will also reject Jesus' followers. Those that, that persecuted Jesus will also persecute Jesus' followers. However, those that accepted Christ's word will also accept the words of the apostles and, and also the words of the apostles as they were written down and canonized in the New Testament. Jesus is saying he is the rock upon which the sea of humanity crashes and breaks upon. Jesus is the continental divide that the reign of humanity falls down and goes one way or the other. There's no middle ground. It's the world and his believers. Verse 21, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. The world does not know God. They know of him, but they do not know God in a uh, saving, reconciled relationship type of manner. In the world of sports, it's easy for everyone to tell who belongs on which team because they wear uniforms or jerseys, right? We've, we've seen these. They wear different colors to w indicate which team they're on, which makes it very easy to identify 
who is on which team. Now for the past couple of chapters, Jesus has been circling back to his teaching that those who are truly his disciples will obey his commands. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Living a life that obeys Jesus' commandments is like wearing a brightly colored jersey, identifying ourselves with Christ. And you know how we can tell who a believer is and who isn't? It's, it's pretty easy. All it takes is a few interactions, a few, a few questions about where they stand. We can tell. The world can tell too. The world can tell the difference between their own and a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. The world can see who's wearing the world's colors and who's wearing Christ's colors. And in verse 21, Jesus is saying, the world is going to hate you because you are wearing my colors. It's not personal. It's not you in particular that they hate. It's because of me. It's because of your faith in me. He says, on account of my name. That's why. It's the jersey you're wearing. And we know it's not personal because when someone switches jersey, the world loves them again. And we've all seen this. It happens every so often. Maybe a high-profile professing Christian that is known in Christian circles, all of a sudden one day they come out and say, yeah, I've moved on. And I'm, I'm no longer viewing lens through that tight, restricted lens that, the, that the, the, the church views him in. And I think it's much more broad and open and, or, or just comes flat out and says, no, I don't believe anymore. And the world gets them to the front of the line. Let's, let's put you on talk shows. Let's make sure you're in the news. Let's give you attention because the world loves to hear these de-conversion stories. And they, they lean back and they say, ah, finally, another, another person wakes up from this dream called faith and they recognize that, that the world is where it's at. And the world loves them. So it's not personal. You take Christ's colors off and the world will start loving you again. In fact, that's why some people take it off. They can't take the heat. They don't like the pressure anymore. They want to be liked by the world. And the reverse is also true. If someone was in the world, if someone was loved by the world, probably a high-profile celebrity, we see this every once in a while, um, they were loved, just, just put forth, they were, they were in that crowd, that star and glitter crowd, and then they come out and they believe in Jesus, all of a sudden the world drops them. All of a sudden, all that media attention they were getting, now all of a sudden it turns negative. Sponsors back away quietly. They're canceled because they switched jerseys. The louder they are about their faith, the more the world hates them. So if you wear Christ's colors, the world will hate you. When sin becomes worse, verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. First of all, who is the them and the they and the there in this verse and also in verse 24? Who are those pronouns referring to? It's the Jewish leaders. It's the Jewish leaders who by and large rejected Christ and refused to believe in him. But it's also anyone else that stood as a witness to the incarnate Christ's life and ministry and teaching and signs and miracles and rejected him and who did not believe. That's, that's who those pronouns 
are referring to. Again, by way of clarification, when he says that they would not have been guilty of sin, both in verse 22 and 24, he's not saying that the Jewish leaders and any other people who witnessed his ministry would have been sinless if only he had not appeared to them. That's not it. We're all, we're all sinners. We, the Bible teaches the universality of sin. He's saying they would not be guilty to the de- degree they are now as a result of seeing and hearing him. And also when he says, but now that they have no excuse for their sin, he doesn't mean that if he hadn't come and said anything or, or showed them his ministry, then there would have been an excuse for their sin. That's not it. Uh, excuse can also be translated as cloak to cover or uh, pretext. So what he means is now they can't even pretend to be innocent. Now, now they can't even attempt to give the appearance of being innocent because of what they have done. This is one of those places in the Bible that teaches us that there are degrees of sin. There are degrees of severity when it comes to sin. All sins are not equal. And what makes this sin of unbelief and rejection of Jesus so egregious is the fact that this unbelieving generation heard and saw God's revelation directly from God. They were given so much light, so much revelation, so much divine truth, and yet they persisted in unbelief. We find a similar uh, situation, similar teaching in Matthew 11, 23 and 24. I think this is worth citing. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day, but I tell you that it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So Sodom, which for generations has stood as uh, the iconic flagship for wickedness and sin and sexual immorality, Jesus is saying that place will be in better shape on the day of judgment than this sleepy little fishing town on the Sea of Galilee. Why? Because if the works and signs and words done in Capernaum by the Son of God had been done in Sodom, they would have repented. But the people of Capernaum rejected the Son of God. That's why. The greater the light, the greater the responsibility, and the greater the accountability before God. And they had been given so much light. The more spiritual light that is rejected, the more severe the sin and the greater the judgment. And while discussing this this sin of rejecting Jesus and his light, we see a a reminder of the inseparable connection between the Father and the Son. Look at verse uh, 23 and 24. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. Now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. So when the first century Jewish leaders and the inhabitants of Capernaum, by and large, not everyone, but the majority, when they hated and rejected and wanted to kill Jesus, they were hating and rejecting and wanting to kill God. That's what Jesus is teaching here. You cannot separate the Father and the Son and say, well, I love God, but I hate Jesus. He's saying, no. Mm -mm. We're connected. 
And that has not changed. To reject Jesus is to reject God. If there's anyone here this morning who is not a believer, not a, not a follower of Christ, I want you to pay particular close attention to what Jesus says in verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. As the word of God is proclaimed in faithful churches all over the world, as the gospel goes forth and as the Bible is preached in the hearing of believers and unbelievers alike, they are accountable to what is being said. And to walk out of church, any church this morning, having heard the word of Jesus Christ, having heard the gospel and not repenting and believing is to reject God. You're not just walking away from some preacher talking about whatever, blah, blah. You are rejecting God when you walk away from the gospel. Every time the gospel is proclaimed, God is issuing a general call that goes out to all people. And he calls all people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is this. Even though we are sinners, we've all sinned. We've, we've all broken God's law. We are not morally perfect. Only Christ was. Even though we are sinners, God holds forth this promise that he will forgive us if we repent of our sin and turn to him. If we acknowledge it. If we, say, if we raise our hand and say, yes, God, I have sinned against you, against your word. I am a sinner. I am hell-bound without a Savior. I need you. God says when a person does that, he will accept them. He will forgive their sin and he will welcome them into his kingdom. Not based on them, not based on them making that move, but based on the righteousness of Christ and his sacrifice. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross covered or made atonement for sin. And when we repent and believe, God applies that covering to the believer and says that now applies to you. Your sin, your personal sin is covered. And the perfect righteousness of Christ. None of us are perfect, but Jesus was. God demands perfect righteousness. And so God promises, not only will I cover your sin and not count it against you, I will credit or impute the righteousness of Christ to you so that I can declare you righteous and welcome you. You know, sometimes I get the feeling when I, when I talk to some people who are, who are unbelievers that because their sin was so long ago that it doesn't really matter anymore. Have you ever seen something like this? They think back and they say, yeah, I've, I, I've done some really bad things, but you know, that, that was a long time ago. I've gotten over it. So I'm assuming God has too. God does not get over sin. God does not forget sin. It doesn't matter what you've done, how long ago it was, it's remembered. And there are only two ways to go with this. We either pay for our sin ourselves in an eternity in hell, or Christ pays for our sin for us. It's one of those two options. So the good news here today is that if you turn to Jesus Christ in faith and repent of that sin and turn to him and trust Jesus for your salvation, not your own good works, please don't count on yourself being good enough to get into heaven. You're not. I'm not. The Pope's not. 
Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not good enough to get into heaven on their own. None of us are. Christ is good. He is the righteous one. Turn to him in faith and God will forgive your sin. But don't walk away. Those that walk away from the general call forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, hate without cause, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. We have to unpack a couple of things in this verse. First of all, when Jesus says the word that is written in their law, he's not distancing himself from the law. He's not saying, well, that's, that's the Jewish law, but I don't, I don't find that authoritative or binding. No, this is just simply another way to refer to the law. Jesus very much affirmed the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. And secondly, when he says, they hated me without a cause, this is a quotation from the Old Testament, either Psalm 35 or Psalm 69. They both talk about hating without cause. Probably Psalm 69.4, which says, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. And it's, in its original context, of course, this is a psalm of David. And even though it was originally speaking of, of David and, and his context, context and his experiences, this, like other messianic psalms, points forward and is also applied to Jesus, to the ultimate Davidic king. So it speaks about David and him being hated without cause, but it also speaks to Christ and him being hated without cause. And that's exactly how Jesus understands this psalm functioning because he's applying it to himself. The, world, the word that is written must be fulfilled. And it was. The world hated him without cause. Jesus is without sin. So the world hated him, but that was a baseless hate. There was no logical reason to to hate him holy spirit promised verse 26 but when the helper comes whom i will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will bear witness about me the church has historically recognized that the holy spirit eternally proceeds from the father and the son in the past there have been some controversies over whether or not the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father or from the Father and the Son. But we need to understand it. the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. This is what our confessions say. And this is what John 15, 26 describes. It says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and Jesus says, I will send to you. So it's both. It's hard to see how the, the Spirit does not proceed from the Son when the Son says, I will send the Holy Spirit. So he's encouraging his disciples. Yes, this is going to be a difficult hike. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hated. But they are to be encouraged because even though Jesus' bodily presence is not with them, they will have the Holy Spirit. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Again, this is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. Those that were with him from the beginning go forth and they serve as leaders in the uh, early church. They, are, they serve as apostles. They proclaim. They write the New Testament, some of them. 
And they're emboldened and empowered by the Holy Spirit, Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So this is exactly what we see happening in the New Testament. Finally, the purpose of Jesus' words. Uh, chapter 16, 1 through 4 are concluding remarks, but they also contain that purpose statement. When he says, uh, all these things... He means everything I just covered. All that talk about the world hating you, uh, about two groups, about persecution, about the Holy Spirit being sent, all that he says to them to keep you from falling away. Jesus told them these things ahead of time to keep you from falling away. He's saying, I want you to know what you're walking into. I want you to know this is going to be a difficult hike. I don't want you to become rattled or, or wonder what's wrong when you start to see uh, large stones that you have to climb up and, and vegetation hitting you in the face. I don't want you to stop climbing before you reach the summit. So I'm telling you this ahead of time so that you will not fall away. And they were going to go through some hard times. For example, verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. If you were here when we went through chapter 9, the man born blind, he was put out of the synagogue. You remember that? It is said that the first century Jews would rather undergo public flogging than be put out of the synagogue. They would rather be beaten before everyone they know in public rather than be put out. Because to be put out of the synagogue was to lose all privileges. You couldn't attend worship. You couldn't hear the, the scriptures taught or proclaimed or read. They didn't have their own copies of the scriptures. Where else were they going to hear that? They couldn't offer sacrifices. And it was also um, a, a social shunning. The, the other Jews wouldn't buy from you. They wouldn't sell from you. You were required to keep a certain distance, physical proximity. It was not pleasant. But that's not all. He continues, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And we read that and we think, how can someone be so off the mark? How can someone who, who says they love God and they're, they're followers of God think they're doing the right thing by killing a follower of Jesus. And Jesus tells us in verse 3, he says, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. It's because they belong to team world. It, they don't know the Father and the Son in a born-again saving relationship. They, they only know a God of their own making. A God as they have perceived him as they have invented him. And their God wants nothing to do with Jesus and nothing to do with Jesus' followers. That's how it is that they can think they're doing a service to God by killing followers of Christ. Verse 4, But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes you may remember it that I told them to you. Very similar statement to verse 1. He's encouraging his disciples, telling them ahead of time, look, this is going to happen. I don't want you to be shaken or surprised or stumble or fall away. So this is 
Jesus promising a difficult hike, he's telling his disciples, and by extension us, that when we commit to following Jesus, we're setting out on a difficult rated trail. Following Jesus is not a smooth level quarter mile loop around the lake. This is a difficult hike. This hike has warnings posted. One of those warnings is a notice about the relationship between the world and the followers of Christ. And he tells them the world is going to hate you on account of my name. This is not isolated teaching. We've looked at a couple verses already. Here's another cross-reference. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you haven't already, you will most likely experience pressure to move away from historical, faithful, biblical Christianity and towards the world. Something other than Christ. And it could be on things like um, human sexuality, gender, uh, things that we, we don't even want to waste time saying from the pulpit. But here's the thing. All, all doctrine is, is, is good. All doctrine is necessary. But this is, there are some things where the world is going to press and where the world is not going to press. We, we are not going to get pressed on whether or not the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone or from the Father and the Son together. We're just not. Not economically, not socially, not occupationally. If, if, you're, if your boss comes in and, and makes a, an ultimatum where you have to either go along with the Father proceeds from the Son, or excuse me, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone rather than the Father and the Son, I will be shocked. It just won't happen. But you may very well experience pressure from HR to sign off on something regarding human sexuality or social ideology. That's just the world we live in. And we have this passage here to encourage us and to strengthen us. Jesus told these things ahead of time to keep us from falling away. James 4, 4 through 5 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I know where some people are at at work. I don't know where everybody is at work. I don't know what everybody is going through. You may be facing pressure at work or school or relationships or sometimes family even. You, you may have someone in, in your family or extended family that has made a declaration about who they are now or what, what they want to be called or, or something like that and you need to go along with it or else you're going to lose that relationship. That's pressure. I've seen that happen between parents and children. That's pressure. Are you willing to lose your child? Well, then you need to accept them. You need to accept what they're saying and acknowledge that it's true. That's pressure. This is here so we do not cave in. This is here so we do not sign off our agreement with sinful practices or to give our consent to falsehood or to compromise our faith 
or to switch jerseys altogether. It is devastating to see someone who has professed Jesus Christ for a long time switch jerseys. I've seen it. You know how much joy we have when we hear when someone comes to Christ for the first time. It's the opposite of that. It's anti-joy. It's devastating. And remember, the world will accept literally anything other than Jesus. You, you can wear any color jersey you want. You can wear two different color jerseys. You can wear a jersey quilted together from, from five or ten different colors. You can wear no jersey at all. You could wear a jersey that says nominal Christianity on the back. The world loves nominal Christians. Those who profess to believe in Christ, but they don't live or obey his commandments. You can wear a jersey like that. Just not that one. Just not faithful, historic, biblical Christianity with Christ and his word at the center. Just don't put that jersey on. But you can wear anything else and they will, the world will, will love you. Every year, thousands of visitors travel to Arches National Park in Moab, Utah. And many of those visitors hike up to see Delicate Arch. It is the most iconic arch uh, in America. If you've ever seen a picture of an arch in the America Southwest, it's probably the Delicate Arch. It's the number one known arch. And because this hike is not an easy one, not everyone completes this hike. It starts off very easy. It starts off with a nice crushed rock uh, level path, but then quickly turns into elevation changes. Eventually the path changes to uh, climbing over small to medium-sized rocks. Then comes a section of the trail where hikers are challenged to make their way up a very steep, sheer rock incline. And so you'll see hikers lean forward at almost grotesque angles, trying to keep their balance. Some just drop down on, on their hands and they climb up on, on all fours to keep their balance. This goes on for a long time. The next section leads hikers through uneven rocks, stretches of sand that fill their shoes and, and threaten to twist ankles. And then finally, after no shade, 480 feet of vertical elevation change Hikers have to hug the side of a cliff as the path narrows with the rock face on one side and a drop-off that would be lethal on the other. No railing. But eventually, after hiking for hours, after covering several miles, the path opens up and reveals Delicate Arch, the largest freestanding arch in the National Park, 52 feet high, 30 two feet wide, standing tall and silent in the sunlight at the edge of an overlook that oversees the rest of the park. It's breathtaking. It dwarfs everyone who approaches it. It is difficult to hike to the arch, but once you reach it, the view is spectacular. In fact, several hikers proclaim that they had never been rewarded as much as they have on this hike that no, no waterfall, a scenic overlook, or anything else, any summit has been as rewarding as seeing that arch after that difficult hike. Brothers and sisters, following Christ is a difficult hike. We will be hated by the world. The servant is not greater than his master. But Jesus is worth the journey. Jesus is worth 
the difficult hike, there is no greater reward than being welcomed by our Lord and Savior when we finally reach the summit, having worn his colors the whole time. Matthew 5, 11 through 12 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Heavenly Father, we have the words of our Savior Jesus telling us that our life following him is going to be difficult. And we know of those who have gone before us, who have been persecuted, hated. And we cannot begin to think that we're somehow going to be an exemption. So Father, we ask that you would strengthen us, enable us by the power of your Spirit to persevere and to never take your colors off. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.